0: A small excursion into the vast array that is the, the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms. Um, it's easy to get lost and it's easy to be selective uh, in, uh, and move away from the more challenging areas. What I've tried to do as we've gone through uh, just a few from book one, book one is uh, Psalm 1 to 41, I've tried to just take a a kind of representative sample of the book. Of course, we couldn't miss out Psalm 1 and 2. They act as the introduction to the whole of the 150 Psalms. And there we saw that, as the Psalm begins, that blessed is the one who, uh, and we saw it as the one who listens to the word of God. And, and, and we saw it's like being beside streams of living water and, and prospers as a result before God and in his eyes. Uh, And as a result, after that, we've seen a few other psalms, songs mainly, we've been turning to, and we've had songs of uh, praise, songs of lament, songs of hope. Last week, we had that beautiful song, didn't we, of of describing God as the shepherd of his sheep, pointing, of course, to the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest of the psalms uh, for us, I think, as individuals, is really well summed up by that great reformer and scholar, John Calvin. He says... There's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. That is, I think what he's saying is, as you read the Psalms, um, every emotion that you feel right now, every desire that you have, every thought is met and confronted by the wisdom of God. And that helps us to maybe change our perspective sometimes. We find practical wisdom here that maybe brings us to change more into the alignment of God. And Psalm 32 is no exception here. In fact, I, I found it quite painful to prepare because I think it goes to the very core of who we are. I found that, I guess you might find that too. Uh, that the, the word of God cuts deep when we dare to look at it. I mean, look at the, how this psalm begins. This is a kind of little introductory point. Notice it says, Blessed is he whose... Now, I guess we would love to finish that little uh, clause. We would expect that clause to be finished uh, by the people of Earlsville with something like, Blessed is he whose finances are always plentiful, whose bank balance is always in the black, whose, um, you know... Finances allow them, and the bonus check allows them to put an extension, buy the car, get a deposit down on a house, whatever it may be. Blessed is he whose children are always well behaved. This is kind of more my realm, you know. Blessed is whose children get a good education. That's the big one here, out here. Blessed is he whose health is good. Or at least health insurance is good. Aren't they the blessed ones? Uh, looking at what folks around us think of being blessed is actually very helpful, isn't it? And It's very helpful to us because it exposes actually what our idols are. But being blessed in the Bible is, is so much more complete. Blessedness is just an English language as we use it. It just simply means inspired, lifted up, provided for. But in the Bible, being blessed looks not only to just the exterior, the simple things, but rather to all dimensions of our life. It is a wellness of being, some people describe it as profound fulfillment, deep-rooted contentedness and joy. But here, the surprise is who it comes to. Have you seen that in verse 1? Blessed is he whose whose whose, transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. On Friday night, I had the joy and privilege of going to a school disco. <laughs> and uh, I was chatting to a few parents, a little bit away from the noise up at Beatrix Potter School. And the inevitable question comes as you get into kind of social gatherings, doesn't it? So what do you do, Andy? And I said, yeah, I'm a church minister. And after a few seconds, after I picked them off the floor after fainting and dropping all their drinks... Um, we kind of got into this quite long conversation for about an hour or so. And I, I'd been preparing, i had Psalm 32 in my mind. And I, I was asked by them, they said, so what's the core of what you teach? You, know, you teach the Bible, what's the kind of real core of what you teach, Andy? And I had the amazing opportunity, to, for about 30 minutes of that conversation, to explain the Gospel to them. And that is a huge privilege and a joy. Uh, but I walked away realising, and it was a very helpful lesson, that transgressions and sins, as we see in here in verse 1, the interesting thing is, they are always covered. They are always covered. The question is, who by? And to what extent? It's interesting that David uses three terms for sin in, verse, uh, in the first five verses. Have you noticed those? Transgression, which literally means rebellion against God. Then he uses the sin word there, doesn't he? Which is a turning word in the Hebrew. It's saying, I'm turning away from God's will and way. And the third word he used comes in verse 5. Do you see it? Iniquity. It's another word for sin there. And that simply uh, means a kind of... It's actually a a perversion. Uh, It's a disrespect for God. And basically he's saying... David is saying it's everything. There's stuff you should have done that you didn't do, stuff that you didn't do that you should have done, and all those opposites and so on. And not just in action, but in thought and in motive, in deed, and the reason for all three words that he uses there is that we can't squirm out of it. The blessed person, or the one who is profoundly fulfilled, is the person whose sin is in its entirety is covered in the whole of their lives. But the problem that came to my mind on Friday with those folks is I don't think many people realise how much they need to cover. Of course, David did, the writer of this psalm. And you remember the context of which he's writing this. He knows the shame of his own sin. Because he's done some pretty rough stuff with Bathsheba. He should have known better. He should have kept away. His glance of seeing this beautiful lady in a bath as he's standing on the palace roof should have just turned away, but he kept on looking and fell for it. But that escalated, didn't it? And he got her pregnant. Then he had to kill her husband by sending Uriah to the front line as a kind of covering up. And he should have known better. But it took Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12 to enrage David telling him this little story of a rich man who uh, went and stole a little ewe lamb from a poor man's flock when he could have taken it from his own flock. And David was enraged at this story. He said, surely this man deserves to die. How true. How true. Which is why he needs covering from that just punishment. But it took Nathan, this prophet, to turn to David with a bony finger and say, David, you are that man. You are that man. You deserve to die because of your sin. See, what David had done is he kept quiet about his sin. That's the context of what we're reading here. He suppressed it. He shoved it deep down inside himself, thinking it gone for good. What he'd done is he rationalised it. We do that very well, I think. I don't think he knew how much sin needed covering until that bony finger pointed at him and said, you are that man. And as I stood with that group of people on Friday night, I realised that they were doing just the same. And I think I do the same too. They didn't understand that their lives were rebellious by nature. Many of us do do know that. So what they were doing is they were rationalising, they were suppressing. They clearly perceived a need for covering their sin, as they saw it. But they believed that they could do it themselves. Just like all of us, I guess, to varying degrees. And see, what David is doing, he's saying from personal experience here that before an all seeing, ever perceiving God, the most fulfilled life, the blessed life, now that belongs to the ones who have been deeply forgiven, deeply covered, completely covered by God, not themselves. So, I'm going to take you through three points. Um, firstly, in verses 1 to 4, I think Davis shows us, with a very traumatic personal example, firstly, the need for forgiveness, the need for forgiveness or covering. Secondly, we'll see the means of forgiveness, verses 5 through to verse 9. And then, thirdly, the blessing of forgiveness in those last two verses. So firstly, the need for forgiveness. We've had three words for sin. And surprise, surprise, we get three words for forgiveness. You see that? Forgiven, verse 1. Covered, also in verse 1. And then also in verse 2, you get, does not count against him. Now, let me just take you aside for a moment. When Jesus met a very cynical religious leader, Simon, in Luke chapter 7, he says the most remarkable thing to this. A woman was washing Jesus' feet with tears and her hair, and Simon's being cynical about this. Who is she to do that? And and he says this, The one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who is forgiven little loves little. Uh, It's very much a mirror of what's going on here. David here is saying that the most compassionate, loving, fulfilled, blessed people in this world are those who have been most forgiven. Whose sins are completely covered. Now I guess there are all sorts of categories of people here. There are those of you who think you're perhaps a bit too good to be deeply forgiven in that way. Completely covered. You just think, I can do it a bit on my own perhaps those of you, you maybe had a, had a tough life and you feel, I've just done some pretty awful things. I'm not good enough to be really, truly forgiven. And I guess there will be some of us here who know true, deep forgiveness from God. And we've accepted that. And do you know what the Bible's saying here? What David and God are saying here? Uh, we, we know the need we have for forgiveness and we've completely got it through God. And the Bible is saying if we're one of those people, we are the happiest, most blessed, fulfilled people in the world. Of course, many people will say, I don't feel any guilt. I'll tell you, there's a few of those on Friday night with me. Um, I don't need forgiving. I'm okay. And our permissive kind of culture has certainly justified that way of liberal thinking, hasn't it? It's probably a reaction, isn't it, to that imposed way of living. That imposed kind of moral framework of Victorian Christian Britain. But that is why I think, I think the term cover is so helpful to us here. In understanding this passage today. Because it purposely should point us back to right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Where Adam and Eve, in their shame, what did they do? They'd not listen to God. They failed to meet, uh, go along with his will. They covered themselves in their shame. And it's something that's so natural to all human beings. We seek to cover up our failures, the mess of our lives, whether it's the embellishments of our CVs, you know what that looks like, uh, the stretching of truth in a conversation, Or the passing the blame at work. We know what that looks like. We all want to be covered. That's why spin, super injunctions, that's a bit of a theme at the moment in the press, isn't it? It's absolutely endemic to every human being to have that desperate need to want to be covered. We don't want people to see every detail of our lives, how we think, what we do. Uh, really helped um, by a book called, by Tim Keller um, called Reason for God. And he, he explains that even the, you know, the, the existentialist philosophers, people like um, Jean-Paul Sartre, who, who they claim to have no moral absolutes whatsoever. Even he would admit in a book called Being in Nothingness, if, if, if anyone has that kind of access to us, they will see things for which we are truly ashamed. we do things, we think things, that we cannot bear the thought of others knowing about. And even in a liberal culture, where a given moral standard is dismissed by so many, Sartre says it doesn't matter because we never even live up to our own standards of of how we want to live our lives. So we never are the people, are we, that we say that we want to be. We never are the people that we, we aspire to be. And we are never the people that we claim to be. We spin. We embellish. We cover. So you see, everyone has a problem with guilt and shame. And everyone desperately wants to be covered. Because we don't want people to see who we truly are. Uh, which is why I think, perhaps we find it difficult to take criticism. Is why we're always putting on a bit of a front... It's why some of us kill ourselves with working all the hours of the day We're trying to cover a bit. Dare I say it, it's why some of us don't eat as we ought to. We're trying to cover up through insecurities and everything else. So you see how amazing it is to be the individual that can say, I am blessed because God has covered me. He's covered everything. What a release. What a peace. You wouldn't have to worry about how hard you work. You know, how much you eat. What you look like in the mirror as you wake up. God has covered everything. What a life. What a blessed life that is. And some of us, I guess, need to see the bony finger of Nathan pointing at us, as David did. And realise, you are that man. For many of us, verse 2 is so haunting. For we deceive ourselves, thinking... Oh, a better day will come. We'll be all right. And we foolishly attempt to deceive God, as it says. I think we need to turn from that foolish way and see the need in all of us for the forgiveness and the covering that God offers. It becomes more obvious in verse 3 and 4, just quickly up there. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now refusing to admit our sin before God, it may not lead to physical suffering as it did for David here. But it often does. The burden of guilt and shame can so often wear people down. And it begins to overwhelm. Verse 4 simply shows us the futility of trying to escape The agony of guilt seems to have no release. And that is, of course, because God's judgment has no release. We have no release from it. There's nowhere to refuge from it. One commentator put it like this. The destructive effects of repressed and unexpressed emotions and anxieties can be powerfully experienced in physical pain and psychological disintegration. We all need covering, don't we? I guess some of us need to man up and admit... It openly before God. We need forgiveness. Secondly, how do we get it? So second point, the means. The means of forgiveness. See, if we are going to be forgiven and have that guilt and shame covered, if we're going to know this blessedness of a forgiven, covered life, look at verse 5. And I, I want to kind of put a warning here, this gets a little bit uncomfortable. I think it firstly says we must we're going to look at each of the clauses of verse 5 there's four little uh, lines there firstly it says I think we need to acknowledge our sin before God, then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity firstly it says acknowledge that is we need to admit that we have failed, that we've transgressed that we've perverted God's will for our lives, but in that acknowledging uh, it is assumed that we know what sin is and what sin is not. Uh, the problem is that, w- that we face is that we live in, in a culture, as I said, with very few moral absolutes and certainly little felt guilt for sin. Many of us, even uh, many, are even offended at any thought of having to admit that they are sinful. Sin is kind of a category that is is left for those who have really, really gone far down the spectrum of. An evil action. That's what it's kind of left for, isn't it? We live in an age where the moral compass is manipulated by a very loud minority. But even now, they are fearful of what precedents we are setting for a future liberalism in our society. Uh, the infamous lobbyist, Peter Tattoo, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, recent, recently admitted He's pushed and pushed for more liberalism and more liberalism. He's recently admitted that with those precedents, he thinks that paedophilia will be legalised in the next 25 years. Because if we argue, and he argues as he does, that morality is defined through felt needs, then who are we to say to the paedophile, you can't act that way. They can't express their desires in that way. My favourite singer Sting once said... I uh, want saying sorry let your soul be your pilot. Well when you do that you're very you're left with a very unclear line aren't you? And everyone has differing lines. And essentially we become our individual our own individual nation states don't we? Now, that is why David acknowledges his sin where look at it to you that is God. He doesn't look to any other standard, whether within himself or without. Uh, because they change, don't they? We change. They can be manipulated. They are inconsistent. And as Christians, we have the comfort to come to God who is utterly consistent. And as Keller put again in Reason for God, God is the straight edge. It's a lovely little image. We always know where he's going to be. We therefore need to have intellectual discernment. We need friends. We need to think these things through. We need loved ones. And that is what a church family is for. That's what home groups are really, really for. To take us to the the straight edge of God, as found in his word, the Bible. And to see if we have sinned or we have not. And we need to acknowledge that sin, therefore, before God. So the means of forgiveness, Firstly, begins with acknowledging sin. Secondly, it says, do not cover up. It's the second part of that first line, I acknowledge my sin to you, and did not cover up my iniquity. It goes against every natural inclination we have, doesn't it? That we need to expose our lives, our hearts, our minds to the living God. It's not that he doesn't know us already, better than we know ourselves. That's the irony of it, really. But rather, in not covering up, we become vulnerable... Sorry. In uncovering... Yeah, in uncovering ourselves. Double negative there, that's ridiculous. Um, we become vulnerable uh, to God and we see the inadequacy of our own attempted covering. We see the futility of trying to cover up that iniquity. It means taking full responsibility there, doesn't it? Without excuse. We haven't really confessed him when we say to God, I did it, but the other person's more to blame. You know, it, it wasn't all my fault. That's not what full responsibility means here. Uh, even if you're only kind of a little bit responsible, you don't kind of say... Oh, I, I did that. But oh, what about these guys? No, you shut up about those and just take full responsibility for what you've done. You admit your sin. So, firstly, the means of forgiveness. First, acknowledge our sin. Secondly, do not cover it up. Take full responsibility. Thirdly, confess your sin to God. I said, in that second sentence, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, the word confess literally means... Um, to say the same thing, uh, one dictionary puts it this way: to confess means to come alongside and to see things from the perspective of the one you have wronged. That's a bit kind of more uh, kind of understanding from the Bible there. And confession is literally a radical it's a change of perspective for us, really, in our hearts and minds. And I was really challenged this week. When thinking about this, because I don't know about you, but when I come and I I want to confess to God, it it usually goes something like this, I'm sorry, God, that I have offended you. And then I go off and and say, why? But saying sorry is just so... It's one part of what confession is. Uh, Because confession is to see it from God's perspective. So for real, true, deep-seated confession, it, it should sound something more like this... Lord, I can't really imagine what it's like to, to create and sustain someone like, like me. To give me breath to breathe, the, the heart and the lungs to, you know, to, to enjoy that. And, and I can't imagine what it must be like to give everything to someone, yet receive so little back. To be ignored day in, day out. Lord, I can't imagine how hurt you must be. But I'm trying to understand and I'm really sorry. See, what we need to do when we confess, we need to change our perspective. See things the way that God sees it. The means for, to forgiveness firstly, acknowledge our sin. Secondly, do not cover up. Thirdly, confess our sin to God. And then, fourthly, no forgiveness for the guilt of sin. No forgiveness. For the guilt of sin. You see that in that second part of the second line. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I don't know about you, uh, but I, I. Well, have you confessed a particular sin again and again for years and years and seen very little change in your life? Are you still battling against that same sin? And have you said sorry for so long? Where is the transformation that you long for? Where is the blessedness? You still feel so trapped and burdened by that sin. Well, do you know the forgiveness of the guilt of your sins? We see at the end of that that, uh, verse 5. And literally, uh, that reads, that true confession, it leads to forgiveness. We see that in that second sentence. But the forgiveness of, it says the guilt of a sin, literally it's the sinness of the sin. It's the depth of the sin. The gravity of the sin. It works itself out in the following verses. We're going to skip a couple of verses. As we're forgiven, uh, David shows us that God wants to lead us, to instruct us, to teach us. And we go to verse 8 if he can. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. See, God wants to lovingly lead his forgiven and covered people. And the contrast is made. He doesn't want us to be like a horse or a mule. That's a great illustration, verse 9. Don't be like the horse or mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by the bitten bridle, or they will not come to you. It's a, it's a simple picture, isn't it? And there's, you know, the horse will only go the way that he is led by uh, his master, his rider, and so on. You know, the horse actually sees some nice grass down to the left here. He thinks, i I'd quite like to have a little chew on that and thank you very much. Off he goes. But the, the rider has to sort of bring him back, doesn't he? A bit of a slap. Off we go. Let's keep going straight. And, and then again, it happens again. Oh, look at that. There's a lovely pile of hay there. I'll, go, I'll nip over that side. And it brings back. You've got to heave him back. And the, finally, the horse gets it and does what the rider wishes. Why? because he is sorry for the pain of his sin. He's been whacked, he's been yacked back into the line that his rider wants to go, his master wants to go. He doesn't understand the heart of his master, that his master wants to ride this path. He doesn't understand the guilt or the the gravity of his sin. He only sees the consequences of his sin. Whack! The horse only changes out of self-pity, doesn't he? And therefore, after a while, he'll just forget and just go back to finding some grass again and get whacked again. He's just looking for some grass to eat instead of doing his master's will. I don't think we're too different from this picture. I remember chatting to a bloke a few years back, totally addicted to pornography. tried everything to stop. And uh, he'd been caught by his wife. He felt totally ashamed, totally ashamed. So we talked about it, and he said, "Yeah, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm going to try and do it." He got some accountability software and all that kind of stuff. A few months down the line, though, his wife trusted him a little more. He just started all over again. Once the embarrassment and the humiliation had gone and been forgotten. He just ended up like the horse and the mule. No, he was sorry, but only for the consequences of the sin. That is, he was sorry for himself that he'd been caught and felt that humiliation and pain. He wasn't actually sorry for the sin itself, he didn't see the, the guilt of the sin, the sinness, the gravity of the sin. He didn't see it as bad in itself, as something that was hurting those who who deeply loved him, including God himself. He just saw the danger of sin and the consequences of a sin. And so if we're like that, we will confess and confess and confess. But if we do so out of self-pity, out of self-preservation, rather than in grief for the sinness, the gravity, the guilt of our sin then have we truly confessed it all and known that blessedness, that release, that joy that, ha- that comes from having the guilt of our sin covered and forgiven? So the means of forgiveness comes through the grief. Sorry. So the means uh, of forgiveness comes through grief rather than wallowing in our self-pity. And there is an absolute major difference between grief for our sin and wallowing in self-preservation, self-pity. I've just got to ask this, do we know that? Do you have sorrow for your sin or are you just sorry for yourself? Confession of forgiveness starts when blame shifting ends, when self-centeredness ends and when self-pity ends. The need for forgiveness. Secondly, the means for forgiveness. And now lastly, very quickly. The blessing of forgiveness. Verse five, I think, is the pivotal verse of the psalm, and we spent a good time unpacking it. But I hope you didn't—I hope I didn't gloss over the miraculous nature of that last section. Just look with me again. I said, "I will confess my transgressions to the Lord," and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It just happens. Notice the immediacy of it. Well, how does it happen? I suppose so far we've focused on the responsibility of each of us, haven't we? Before God, as we confess our sin, pleading for forgiveness. But the work of forgiveness lies in the grace of God as we see... And actually, let's just take us back to verse 2. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. It's just not counted against us. And God is saying through David that... Although you know the need for covering, salvation comes only as we confess our sin and God forgives, God covers, God does not count against you. It hasn't. Actually, um, our sin has nothing to do with our salvation in that way. How is that possible? Well, let's turn to verse 7 to finish and to close. There is a hint in verse 7. David actually didn't know the whole story as he was writing this. But he had an inkling that in God himself there was a covering. There was a forgiveness that was going to be on offer. There was a place to hide. And we all know that we need covering. But David sensed and looked forward to God himself providing that covering. How can you hide in God? When the thing you are hiding from is actually God himself and his judgment. Well, David trusted that God would be the one who provided. Look at verse 7. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And you all know the answer, I hope. I guess you might be able to work it out. Because the answer comes in the form of a wooden cross. You see, the cross was the ultimate place of uncovering. You were stripped and you were nailed with your hands out wide, exposed, and your ankles. And you were literally exposed to all the elements and many people died of exposure. It was the ultimate dehumanisation. It's the very thing that none of us want. We don't want the world to see us in our complete nakedness and exposure. Why did Jesus do it? Well, he was stripped and tortured so that we might be clothed, covered. God gave Jesus a status he did not deserve so that we might have counted to us, as verse 3 says, a status that we do not deserve. This is the ultimate blessing of forgiveness for it brings us an undeserved salvation. So when we accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour and ask for forgiveness for our sin, we are forgiven at that point permanently. Everything of all of our lives, of all of our hearts, are covered completely. As Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation. And that is, if you like, the basis and the great blessing of forgiveness. And if we don't get that clear in our minds what happens is that we start turning the daily act of confessing our sin to God and asking forgiveness into a way of trying to gain mercy and salvation. So if we don't make ourselves feel really bad and wretched about the way that we've been and we think God won't forgive us, the point is he's done everything already. It's all been forgiven and covered in Christ. So, the question is why bother to confess? Why bother to ask for forgiveness if we've had our sin counted as Christ? It's all been covered. The very reason is because we want intimacy and fellowship with the God who loves and sustains us. God longs to reach out his arms to us. The sad thing is that so many of us just hold it at arm's length, he just wants to give you a big hug. We struggle to know this blessed life because we wallow in self-pity and we think that berating ourselves will gain some kind of merit rather than knowing the joy and the absolute freedom in the covering that Jesus Christ provided as he uncovered himself on the cross. Verse 10 says, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. The question is, do you trust in Jesus? The one who took everything for you. If you do, you are safe, it says there. He surrounds you. So therefore, verse 11, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous sin. All of you are upright in heart. I want to finish very quickly with just a question. It's an obvious one. Where is your hiding place? Where is your hiding place? See, if you try to hide in your own life those little good things that you do, if you cling on to the guilt of past sin, ashamed of honestly confessing it, if you walk around oh, just a bit embittered by life, grumpy and and such things, if you look at confession as a painful, traumatic, religious duty rather than an intimate blessing given by God to his children, if you actually quite like exposing others, if you aren't a a, a person that is easy to open up to and be weak in front of if you are a harsh judging person let me graciously say to you I think you're trying to cover yourself by uncovering others so I think we need to get the joy of knowing Jesus as your hiding place the one who has completely covered you as he uncovered himself on the cross. I've been a a little while longer than I normally am. And I want us now to just spend one or two moments in quiet uh, and reflection uh, of what we've been learning. And I want you to honestly maybe look at verse 5. It's so critical And see whether you need to frankly and honestly confess your sin to God. So just a moment of quiet.